This is episode 88 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. This episode goes back to the 2014 Annual Enrichment Conference with Jared Wilson. This is session one from Monday night, titled Pastoring the Heart. Thank you for having me here. It's a great privilege to be with you. I hope that you will join me in exulting in the Word of God. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 for the duration of the time we have together. Um, over the next four, uh, I know you have five sessions, but the four sessions that I'm sharing with you, we're going to be right there in that same chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Hopefully seeing what the Lord would have us know um, through His Spirit about His Son. And this just little snippet, this uh, excerpt from one of Paul's impassioned letters to the church in Corinth. Uh, let me pray. We're going to ask the Father to send the Spirit to illumine this word to us, to help us to cherish His Son more deeply, and to receive all that we ought to receive um, from this revelation. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would be here, present. We know that you were here waiting for us. You were here before we got here. Uh, we ask that you would receive us uh, with such tenderness and sweetness in your spirit, but also great power. Um, these brothers and sisters who are in the trenches uh, on a daily basis, this is not the sort of work, uh, ministry, whether they are vocational ministers or not. This is not the sort of work, the Christian life, being in community with brothers and sisters that you clock out of, that you turn off at the end of the workday. So we ask that this would be a time of refreshing for them, we ask that this would be a time of uh, great ministry. So uh, as your spirit is here welcoming us into your word, we ask that you would impart to our hearts all that we ought to receive. Uh, help us to uh, receive your word with gladness and submission uh, to bring to it only our sin and not our big ideas. Uh, that you would take our sin from us and give us what we ought to have, um, this, this bread that we are hungry for. And it's in your great son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at um, just verses 1 through 3. Um, just to give you a little backstory, probably most of you are familiar, so I won't labor this point um, too long. It's likely that Paul had visited the Corinthians um, at least three times. Um, some scholars believe that he wrote them four letters in total, although there's some dispute about um, whether some of the writings he referred to are actually um, the letters that we actually have in the scriptures or whether there's some that we just haven't found or whether St. Corinthians itself is, is sort of a pastiche of some of the letters that he refers to elsewhere. Um, but more than likely, or at least um, most scholars believe that um, of the four letters they uh, assume or theorize that he wrote to this church, um, to the churches in Corinth, um, we have the second and fourth letter. This is by them putting sort of the timelines together with Acts and then some other references in First and Second Corinthians. Um, some assume that we have the second and fourth letters that he wrote, and that the fourth letter that he wrote to them is this letter, Second Corinthians. Um, but what we see in these two letters that we have, First and Second Corinthians, in the Scriptures, is how tumultuous Paul's relationship with the church is. Um, there are times, especially in 1 Corinthians, where he's rebuking the immorality that is um, running rampant in there. Um, there's evidence that they are struggling with his authority and questioning his authority, whether they ought to consider him an apostle or whether even as an apostle they ought to you know, do what he says, that sort of thing. Um, but it's very clear, at least, that Paul um, 
even in his sternness, and there's reference to a harsh letter or a harsh message, a severe message that he had to send to them. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 2 in 2 Corinthians, in verses 3 and 4, he says, he wrote with great distress and anguish of heart. And, and, and with tears, he's writing through tears. Um, but he also has a great love for them. He wouldn't have these tears if he didn't have a great love for these people. And he experiences, despite his um, back and forth, despite the angst that he feels for them, and the anger, the righteous indignation that he feels about what is taking place often in their churches, he has a great joy in them. He still boasts in them. He still exhorts them in holiness and calls them to the truth of the gospel that they share Together, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, which I find really interesting, given all the shaking that's taking place and some of what he says. The Corinthians are people that Paul is trying to pastor. Yes, he's trying to pastor them as an apostle, not as a local elder within their church locally, um, but... Elders and all, the entire um, local congregation there, Paul is experiencing what we might call normative pastoral ministry, right? I mean, don't you um, want to um, um, it, hug their neck and wring it at the same time? I mean, is that not what pastoral ministry often is? It is joyous and it is trying. It is exhilarating and it is agonizing. It is wonderful. It is terrible. At the same time. Well, this is how he begins in um, the third chapter of this letter. Of course, there weren't chapter breaks in his original letter. But um, beginning in our chapter 3, this is what he says to them. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show... That you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And this is the word of the Lord. He is building, I think Paul is building into a matter. Um, as you see, if you have your Bible open, you can see where he goes from this. He's building into um, the supernaturality of Christian ministry. That's something we're going to talk about tomorrow morning as we look at the next few Verses, But for now, let's just look at these three verses and see what I think are some of the implications. Paul is talking about something that is utterly personal. It is utterly powerful. And it is utterly pastoral. He is trying to shepherd them, but shepherd them from afar, but yet in a very personal way. The distinction that he is making here between letters written with ink on stone versus letters written by the Spirit on hearts is how he is differentiating his gospel ministry from the sort of legal pontificating and uh, persecution of his past. So you have that in the background. So in the, in the back of Paul's mind, he's thinking, I'm not going to do it the way that I used to do it. I have seen a transforming vision that has given me this mandate that has changed me. And that's how I want to um, pastor. That's how I want to be on mission. That's what I want to deliver. That's what I want to exhort them to be and do and to see. And so the distinction that he has there is the distinction between what we might call spiritual or religious management and what ought to be called true pastoral ministry. Shepherding hearts in the gospel. Now Paul is a guy who could simply write letters. He could give out these rebukes and commands. He could dispense his doctrine from afar. 
His travels could afford him that kind of distance. But you don't get that sense in his letters, any of his letters. You see, in fact, how emotive he is. In, in a, a non-whiny, non-pathetic sense, he wears his feelings on his shirt sleeves. He's constantly talking about how he feels. Right? That makes a little, you know, some of us a little nervous. Don't, I don't know how you feel. Keep that to yourself. But Paul's always talking about how he feels. The joy he feels, the angst he feels, the anxiety he feels, the, the depth of agony he feels, the, the despair of life itself. He, I mean, he talks about his feelings. Again, not in a whiny, pathetic way, but in a personal, honest, transparent way. He feels gospel ministry. And he loves the people that he's writing to. And so he's not simply trying to push them around like pawns on some game board for all of the missional strategy that Paul is engaged in, the missionary um, journeys that he's engaged in. He's seen from the 30,000 foot view, right? I mean, he's, he has that sort of vision, the big picture vision. And yet he is never thinking of people or, or seeing people as um, they, you know, people on a game board and push around as pawns in this sort of ministry. He is, according to these three verses at least, seeking their hearts. So we need to ask ourselves then, as people engaged in ministry, what does this mean for us? What does pastoring hearts, as opposed to just pushing bodies around, actually mean? Well, I've come up with four things that we see in these three verses. We're going to use these three verses as sort of jumping off points to essentially four things that um, pastoring hearts means. The first is this. Pastoring hearts means resisting pragmatism. Pastoring hearts means resisting pragmatism. Pragmatism is not the same thing as being practical. The Bible is very practical. Um, it, it, it is um, initially not practical. Like, uh, you know, if you, uh, for instance, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, is that very practical? But in terms of things to do, the Bible gives us lots of things to do. Um, it may not be efficient. Um, but it is still things to do. There are, there's practicality there. But there's not pragmatism there. Here's the difference. Pragmatism judges the usefulness of a particular practice or the usefulness of a particular person sometimes based on the apparent results. Um, it, it has a utilitarian ethos to it. So we um, see people, um, if we see them in a pragmatic way, through a pragmatic lens, we're seeing people based on what they can do for us or what they might do, what they might produce. Um, a, a, a pragmatic methodology, a pragmatic way of doing ministry is based on the results that you want to receive. So for instance, if you can get 5,000 people into your church building on Easter, for instance, by giving away a car, then give away a car. Because you can get 5,000 people into your door by doing that. In, in, in the pragmatic way of thinking, the ends justify the means. So if the results are favorable, if the, if the results look good, if it seems useful, then we'll use any means necessary to achieve those ends. And then on the flip side, if it doesn't look like it works, if it doesn't work, then we shouldn't use it. But pragmatism, again, has this sort of um, materialistic, utilitarian ethos built into it. It is by nature unspiritual. It has no room for discernment in it. So, for instance, biblically, if we look at an example, if Jesus loses 5,000 people who had come to the all-you-can-eat buffet because he started preaching himself, then you would take Jesus aside and say, hey, maybe let's stick with the food and not the preaching. 
because I mean they all they all you ran them all out the door. See, that's when you're looking through the pragmatic lens. And the pragmatic impulse, I mean, we, we laugh, we nod our heads, but the pragmatic impulse is always crouching at the pastor's door, seeking to desire him, to rule over him. Um, it's something that you and I have to fight on a daily basis. Mark Dever has said the greatest threat to the gospel specific to today is the indirect challenge of pragmatism among evangelicals. Because it is so easy, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's effortless, really, to begin thinking and ministering in pragmatic ways. We turn the work of Christian ministry into a kind of spiritual technology or mathematics. We think if we just do this, then the results will be this. But real Christian ministry is more messy than that. There's no guarantees of how people will react or respond. And sometimes the responses that you get from the means you're using are not the response, are not the real win. Sometimes growth is gained, but it's not the kind of growth you ought to have. Or the growth becomes an end in and of itself. The numeric growth becomes an end in and of itself. And so the temptation then becomes greater. You begin to love that there's, I mean, who hates it when there's lots of people in the building? And if that number goes down, don't you begin to, what am I doing wrong? What do we, maybe you're preaching the gospel and it's driving people out. But see, if you're looking through the pragmatic lens, you would push that off the table. You, you only want to see these sort of numeric results. When we're thinking at the 30,000-foot level, as pastors often do, we have to think in terms of system and vision, and where we want to go long-term, and how all the different parts of the church are working, and, and all that sort of thing. But when we're at that level, pastors, it's so easy to begin seeing people as ants. How can we manipulate them? Or maybe we've taken the biblical sheep metaphor a bit too far, and now we're looking at how to best herd people and not how to best feed people. I believe pragmatism in the pastor is killing the spiritual life of congregations, even congregations that see an increase in attendance to Sunday worship. Despite the intricacy and efficiency of applied systems, many attenders of the consumer-driven church get everything that they want except pastoral care to their hearts. More and more, this is appearing to be by design. As more and more leaders denigrate any layperson who is interested in being fed and cared for. They're called babies. Spiritual babies. They're told to grow up. They're told that the church is not for them. There are leaders of some megachurches who will flat out say the church is not for Christians. What else is the church but Christians? Or they're called Pharisees or eggheads or religious jerks. A sheep who wants to be fed is seen as somebody in the way of the big picture vision. And it's not that we can't learn anything good from some of these titans of the pastoral industry. It's just that more often than not, what is found in them is not original, and what is original is not good. So there are aspects of professionalism that make sense in our modern ministry context, but when all is said and done, we are not managers of spiritual enterprises. We are shepherds, and shepherds feed their sheep. So pragmatism is anti-spiritual, it's anti-gospel, it's legalistic at its heart. It's anti-spiritual because it forgets that Christianity is supernatural. Although the Lord is using natural means, he's using flesh and blood, he's using natural means, the work of Christianity is supernatural. It is spirit-empowered, it is spirit-sourced. 
Again, we're going to talk about that more tomorrow morning. But pragmatism is anti-gospel and legalistic because it operates in law mode. Essentially, it says, if you want to get this, you do that. That's sort of a legal exchange. That's law mode thinking. Pragmatism treats church ministry like a vending machine. If I just push the right buttons, I'll get the desired result. And in pragmatic ministry, people then become interchangeable. They're seen as expendable. They're seen as warm bodies, useful to the program or not useful to the program. And you can't win souls if you're trying to manage them. The quickest way to turn your church into a collection of consumers and customers is to treat them like they are consumers and customers. Paul says, you are letters written, verse 3, not with ink. You are letters written not on tablets of stone. What we are dealing with here is hearts. Secondly, pastoring hearts means personal presence. Pastoring hearts means personal presence. There's a little bit of alliteration for you. I know Baptists like alliteration. Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts. I love that. I have you in my heart. You, you, you represent me in a way. You, I have you here. I have you hidden inside of me. Now, how do you get somebody into your heart if you don't spend time with them? If you don't get your hands dirty being among them? I don't know what your Monday mornings are like, pastors. Maybe they're full of you know rainbows and energy. And, I don't know. The birds are chirping. And it's just, oh, Monday. I love the smell of predestination in the morning. <laughs> But Monday mornings, I just want to be left alone. I just want to crawl into my little office hole and not be bothered. I don't. But Mondays are my hardest day, as I'm sure for many of you they are. They're also my longest day. So I begin, um, I get to the office about 8 a.m. And every Monday night is a meeting, so I, I may go home for lunch, but I'm home. Um, if it's an elders meeting night, and home sometimes 11 p.m., something like that. Um, I have a meeting every Monday night. It's my longest day. It's my hardest day. It's my busiest day because Sunday morning is when you stir everything up, right? And Sunday afternoon and Monday is when people start emailing and calling and having all sorts of questions or, or they thought of something while they were at church and they want to have that. So there's just the, the tasks begin to mount up. The, um, you know, the flood is, you know, uh, the waters are now spilling back over the banks. That's sort of like you parted them on Sunday morning and now they're just sort of coming back. Like, oh, here we go again. So you just hit deep in this sort of, and, and that's sort of Monday morning. And so it's Monday morning, it's Monday, and, but it's really all days, especially on Monday when people are most needy, that I am most needy and most tender and most want to just stiff arm everybody and everything. And begin to see people as um, you know, interruptions, to see them as obstacles, um, right? I mean, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people, right? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't it be fantastic if you could just read? <laughs> like, all the time? Just let me read and write. Let me show up on Sunday morning and deliver my sterling sermon. And then leave me alone until the next Sunday. That's what we want. That's how we feel. I begin to see people on Mondays especially, but when I am low, when I am tired, when I'm mean, human, when I'm who I am. I begin to think of the flock that God has loaned out to me 
as items on a task list and not as people made in the image of God. Precious and broken and beautiful and sinful, just like me. And so I need to see them as people and not as problems. I want to see them not as obstacles in the way of some vague mission, but as the mission itself. The minute I begin seeing God's people as problems to be avoided is the minute that I've denied the heart of Christ. There's many a pastor whose ministerial trajectory actually takes him further and further away from the sheep. Some of us are actually aiming for that. That's what we would like. We want, we're trying to work our way up into a position where we really only deal with staff or, or what have you, who are sheep themselves as well, but it kind of takes us out of that, that muck. We'll delegate away the muck to, the, you know, to those fools who haven't worked up the way to, the, you know, to where I have. Carl Truman um, quotes an email that he received from a reader that goes like this. I worship this Sunday with my in-laws at their home church, which is pastored by a man featured at this year's, and then he gave the name of a very big conference, with 6,000 of my closest friends. <laughs> my father-in-law has been dying for five years. He has renal failure. It's very likely within months of his death. I cannot get a pastor or an elder from this congregation to come and visit him once, let alone make it a weekly priority to help him die well in the full confidence of the Lord Jesus. But there's time, mind you, for yet another conference. Now, trusting that what this fellow has written is, is actually true, I, I, I don't know, he didn't name who it was, and even if he did, I probably wouldn't know who that was, but trusting that what this fellow has um, tried to do, he's actually tried to get an elder from his father-in-law's church to visit him before he dies. This is unconscionable that this would even happen. We were once in a church where the pastor um, essentially said to someone who was interested in joining the church, who asked, if I'm in the hospital, point blank, it's a good question to get asked, isn't it? If I'm in the hospital, will you come see me? And this pastor said, no. Um, he didn't say, it's unlikely, I do hospital visits, but I'm not sure if I would be the one. He said, no, I don't ever do that. That's someone else's job. Somebody would visit, he assured them, but it wouldn't be him. And he wasn't saying this in terms of disdain, like he was too big or what have you for hospital visitation. He, it was just a matter of fact thing. It just wasn't in his particular job description to do that. Now, I understand an individual pastor not making every or even most hospital deathbed visits. You know, maybe you're in the sort of church you have, it's just impossible. We're not ever present. But I don't understand for the life of me a pastor who would say, I never make them. Or I would never make them. It's just not what I do. I would never do that. Peter, in his letter, for, in First Peter chapter 5, he exhorts the elders to shepherd willingly, not under compulsion. And I think shepherding under compulsion tends to happen when ministry becomes difficult. The temptation for many pastors of growing busy churches is to begin delegating away counseling, for instance, or visitation, or funerals, or personal discipleship, and simply focus on studying and preaching and vision casting and the like. Consequently, the pastor who removes himself from the thick of messy ministry begins to make the excuses. Well, I can't do it all. Well, certainly you can't do it all, but you, good pastors do some. 
they do enough to remain among the flock of God. Otherwise, you're not a pastor, you're a manager. Perhaps you own the pasture, but you're not in the pasture with the sheep. And so it becomes important for us, brothers, not to withdraw from messy ministry, not to isolate, not to insulate ourselves. Now, the impetus towards personal presence with our people is seeing them as Jesus sees them. When he saw the crowds, Matthew chapter 9, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this compassion is not merely a feeling sorry for, right? I mean, we can very easily feel sorry for our people. But to have that sort of guttural, visceral compassion for them, to see them as God sees them, to see them as people in great need of the gospel, and to be moved in the guts by their brokenness. And so maybe for you, it is incumbent to do what I have to do on Monday mornings when I face the great temptation to exercise oversight out of compulsion or from a distance. I really crave pastor of vision. Pastor for vision and preaching. And that's an okay title to have. Maybe someone had a title and I, I don't mean to offend you. That's great. I hope that part of your vision is the face of a broken person in front of you on a regular basis. What if Christ saw us as we are so prone to see others? What if he regarded us as we regard others? So uh, to get through the gospel to see other people, I, I have to say, okay, how does God see me through the gospel? And I picture myself on Monday morning when I'm most pitiful, when I'm most grumpy, when I'm most tender, when I'm most just empty, spit. We, I mean, I think it's normative that our, our people come to church to get filled up and they're supposed to begin Monday filled up, right? But it's because we have poured out. And so we begin, we're on opposite tracks, really. The pastor spends his week trying to fill up that he might pour out on Sunday morning. And so Monday, if you're like me, you just feel empty. And I think, how does God think of me as I'm sitting here just thinking, oh, I, I could be a UPS guy. Right? Get to wear those little brown shorts. And I mean, just drive around without a door, right? But something, in, you know, the kid in me like, likes that. I can stick, you know, whatever. I, I could do that. Or I could just do this writing thing. I could just hole up in the woods and just write. I don't have to talk to anybody. And I think the Lord sees me in those moments. And he doesn't go, oh, this guy, again. He doesn't sigh. He doesn't check his watch when I'm talking to him. He doesn't groan. He doesn't cross to the other side of the road when I'm coming. He feels compassion. I'm a sheep that needs shepherding. He doesn't see us the same way we see the pop-in visitor. He doesn't sulk. He doesn't sigh. He ministers to us willingly and eagerly. There's a power in, in that, in that understanding. There's a power there that we can extend then in a ministry of reconciliation to others. Paul in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians says, I want to visit with you again. I want to be with you. In Galatians, one of his harshest letters, most severe letters, he says, I wish I could be with you so you could see my face. So you could see. Presence is so important. 
And I think actually you can't be a pastor without it. The third thing we see is this. Pastoring hearts means proclaiming the gospel. Pastoring hearts means proclaiming the gospel. This is not some religious pet talk that Paul is traveling around to peddle. He's not on the sort of self-help prosperity gospel tour, right? The revival circuit. He is ministering, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, it is a letter from Christ. It is written with the spirit of the living God. There is a power there that's beyond what might be in any sort of set of religious instructions or advice. Only the gospel will go deep enough to affect real heart change. Everything else is just behavior modification. And we're just reassembling the chairs. We're just helping people shift one idol to another. One addiction to another. If we're giving them just a set of things to do and never the finished work of Christ, we're just putting another burden on top of them. We might take one off, but we're just replacing it with another. Only the gospel comes in and goes deeper than that surface level. The hardest hearts can conform to a set of behavioral expectations. I mean, we see it among the Pharisees. It's the most vivid example. How they had all of the externals put together, but inside they were rotting, dead, fetid. And so the gospel is certainly crucial in our preaching ministry. Preaching that takes the form of a lecture might be great for creating information-blooded minds. We can create really intelligent sheep. They know a lot about the Bible. They have a lot of information. They're, you know, little academics. And we can boast in that how smart my people are, how much they know. Look at all the doctrinal information they have. You know, the demons have impeccable theology. They have, I mean, a demon could be a Baptist or a Presbyterian. But they can't be a Christian. Because a Christian is one whose heart is indwelled by the spirit of the living God. So you might conform them to, to, you know, to some external information about the scriptures. And you can communicate that. Or you might have them performing in a very self-helpy way. They look good. They look religious. They look spiritual. And while every sermon should convey information, you are teaching the purpose of a sermon is not primarily mind-informing, but heart-transforming. And so we aim at the heart with the sermons. We exult and exegete and exposit the scriptures. We aim at the heart in two primary ways. The first is by proclaiming the good news, not simply good advice. And we aim at the heart in our preaching by exulting in our preaching. In other words, you don't just preach the text, brothers, but as much as you are able, you feel it. There is a sense of having owned this, as it having owned you as you were communicating it. Churches, and maybe you've figured this out, here's a bit of practical advice for you. Churches usually don't become passionate about what their pastors tell them to be passionate about. They become passionate about what their pastors are passionate about. So if you're harping on the gospel-centered thing, and yet they can tell that what really fires you up is the imperatives of Scripture. Guess what you're really communicating to them? The imperatives are exciting. The imperatives are the deal. They're going to see that your zeal is reserved for the law, no matter how many times you tell them to center on the gospel. And 
Martin Luther says it's the supreme art of the devil to turn the gospel into law. Here's something that I've discovered, and I, I, I catch myself doing it. Sometimes in the middle of doing it, we're telling our people to be gospel-centered. We're really fired up. Be gospel-centered. Be gospel-centered. Be gospel-centered. And you've turned gospel centrality into a law. Right? So you may ask, well, what's the alternative? I want them to be gospel-centered. You, instead of telling them to be gospel-centered, you hold up the gospel. Or you hold up Christ that they might behold Him. You don't just say, look at Christ. You show them Christ. It's one of the um, basic um, dictums for writers. Show, don't tell. So C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, if you're writing a story, you don't say the mountain was beautiful. You describe the mountain in such a way that the reader will say, that's beautiful. And so that's what we want to do with Christ. Show Him as beautiful. As you preach the gospel, you're going to be preaching to both prodigals and older brothers. Only the gospel can speak to both simultaneously. So you're going to explain how the gospel is opposed to self-righteous religiosity. And you're entreating both brothers then to turn to Christ, the legalist as well as the hedonist. You don't give the impression that the gospel is just for the obvious sinners, the lost people, but for all people including those in the pews every Sunday. This is what Tim Keller writes about Jonathan Edwards. He was very vivid with his storytelling. Almost no one in the history of the church writes about the gospel in a beautiful way. But this is what Keller says. He understood, Edwards understood that telling stories to tweak the emotions is like putting dynamite on the face of the rock, blowing it up and shearing off the face, but not really changing the life. On the other hand, if you bore down into it with the truth and put dynamite in there, if you're able to preach Christ vividly, and you're able to preach the truth practically, and you're able to preach it out of a changed life and heart in yourself, which obviously isn't the easiest thing by any means, then when there is an explosion, it really changes people's lives. I don't think we have the right end of the stick in general either in the movement of the people who are working towards telling stories because they want to get people emotionally, or working towards giving people the truth because they want to be sure that people are doctrinally sound. He says only the gospel gets beneath that into the heart. And it will get you emotionally and intellectually. But as long as you're playing on the surface, you will not be addressing the heart idols that need addressing. So in our counseling, in our visitation, in your staff devotionals, in your instructional time, we have to administer Christ, not advice. Here's the fourth thing. Pastoring hearts means seeking souls, not stats. Meaning statistics. Pastoring hearts means seeking souls, not stats. Verse 3. You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Here is the difference between disciple making and decision making. They're showing something. They're not just um, assenting to something. They're not just conforming to an external idea. They haven't just signed a card themselves. They're revealing, Paul is saying, that they themselves are from Christ And somehow, to be from Christ has worked through, he's delivered by us, has worked through the pastoral ministry, the gospel ministry. They're showing 
That their soul has changed. Not just that their behavior has changed. That they're actually from Christ and not from Paul, for instance. The way that we are typically programmed to measure the success of our ministry sets us up for hollow victory, I think. And desperate failure. It, this doesn't mean you never do any measuring. I'm not one of those that says you, just, you, know, you never count or anything like that. It's just to say when you do the measuring, you have your heart fixed on the gospel. And it is to say that what you measure and how you measure will show where your confidence lies. For instance, I, I think evangelicals really need to remind ourselves of this on a constant basis. The largest church, at least by the last counting, the largest church in North America is a place where the gospel is not preached. I don't even know if we could call it a church, but just for the sake of argument, we'll call it a church. It's not likely the majority of the attendees of this church are subsisting on the gospel because the gospel is not of first importance there. And in fact, the gospel is obscured there because the pastor, quote-unquote pastor at this church, has gone on record numerous times to affirm that, for instance, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are Christian brothers. So this is a place where if, when there is a gospel, it is likely a false gospel, and the place is growing. It's exploding and continues to explode. So clearly attracting a crowd cannot be our measure of success. Jesus called us to make disciples, but many churches seem to think that if we just count hands or sign cards, if we just chart the number of baptisms, that will suffice. One prominent pastor who's very visible on social media, routinely shouts, I haven't seen him do it in a while, but there was a period of time where he routinely shouts, scoreboard, as a justification for his method of ministry. In other words, we have the numbers, and that wins. It's a tone-deaf response to the critics of his ministry who aren't saying he doesn't have a lot of people. Charles Spurgeon, on this note, is devastatingly wise he says, do not think that soul winning is or can be secured by the multiplication of baptisms and the swelling size of your church. He goes on to say, what do dispatches from the battlefields such as the following mean? Quote, unquote, last night 14 souls were under conviction. 15 were justified. Eight received full sanctification. Spurgeon says, I'm weary of this public bragging. This counting of, I love this, of unhatched chickens. <laughs> this ex exhibition of doubtful spoils. Lay aside such numberings of the people. Such idle pretense of certifying in half a minute. That's what, that which will need the testing of a lifetime. Some seek to measure how they are growing creatively or in the subjective realm of what they call excellence. Are we becoming more excellent? When we make these sort of subjective things even our benchmarks, we start doing, I think, stupider and stupider things. There was, I'm not making this up, I think of the year before last, many thought it was a hoax, but it was real. A promotional video for a, a American church uh, sermon series 
see if I can put this delicately, that was centered around the theme of passing gas. Exactly. It was, it was a passing gas themed sermon series. Another pastor will sleep on the roof of his church with his wife to promote his sex study. The same guy will direct a worship service for dogs. Another has dirt bikes jumping over his pulpit. The more we engage in measuring the wrong things, the sillier and stupider it makes us. Now we can look at those guys and go, oh, look how ridiculous those guys are. But we are often susceptible to the same methodology. We may refrain from the stupid stuff. But our minds sometimes go to the same working methods. Measuring temporary things keeps us always discontent. Like the fellow who's constantly checking his 401k every day. What's it doing today? What's it doing today? What's it doing today? It leads to that pragmatism we're meant to resist. It leads to a pretentiousness the Bible says is abominable to the Lord. I want you to recall, you're probably familiar with the call of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. He sees this exhilarating, awesome vision of the glory of the Lord in the temple. The sort of thing that if any of us saw, we would say what Isaiah says. When the Lord says, who will go for me? Here, here am I, send me. And then what the Lord calls Isaiah to is the sort of ministry that none of us would aspire to. Like if the Lord laid it out for you. He essentially says, go say to people, go preach to people who aren't going to listen to you. Who will revile you. And he even gives him numbers. You're going to lose 90%. A tenth of the people will, will remain. Now, anyone signing up for that? Go to this church now and lose 90% of the people. None of us would do that. And yet it's, it's a reminder. It's, a, it's something, it's a biblical picture to us that numbers are not what matters. Hearts are what matters. The glory of Christ being manifest in the world is what matters. And if God must use some of us in decrease to facilitate his increase, so much the better. Now, if he's facilitating your increase for his increase, that's great too. But it doesn't mean that if you're in decrease, you're doing something wrong. That's pragmatic thinking. Maybe constantly measuring things isn't the best idea. So we need to be tuned to a deeper reality, a foundation that holds sure through gain and loss, increase and decrease, victory and defeat. The reality is that the kingdom of God is unshakable. And so even the tiniest church, the tiniest ministry, the most obscure ministry is epic in the spiritual economy. It will echo into eternity. And the reality is this is good news. No matter where your ministry finds you. Because it means that God's approval of you is not based on your production. Your numbers. Your results. He calls us to be faithful and he will be responsible for the results. But he doesn't look at us brothers and sisters. And say, oh, what have you done for me lately? Yeah, last week looked pretty good. What you got on your sleeve for this week? You know, the numbers are down. You know, some of us are carrying a lot of wounds 
a lot of burdens because we have worked under pastors, senior leaders who hold out the numbers in front of us. And we are tirelessly putting forth the gospel, discipling our, our people wherever our, our sphere of responsibility is, and yet this hoop gets, this bar gets higher and higher and higher for us. Do you know that Christ is not doing that to you? He's not, he's not like that. It, it's finished. It is completed. He has done the work that you couldn't do. And so no matter how many numbers you can bring in, no matter how well you can preach, no matter how tired you are, His smile is over you. He approves of you in Christ. So when we ourselves cling to the gospel, it begins to shape us. It gives us the mind and art of Christ for our people. And as Christ shepherds our hearts, it helps us to shepherd the hearts of our people. With deep love, with spirit, capital S, spiritual affection. Don't we want that? I want to love my people. I don't want to be annoyed by them. I want to love them. And so I see how Christ loves me. I want to seek the good of my sheep. If it means that I must be hungry, that they be satisfied. If it means I must be naked, that they be warm. I know that's where Christ went for me. And in the end, and this is okay, it's a biblical thing. Paul says, you, you're, you're my letter, you're our letter. Or as he has um, you know, his test case, his, his pupils, his those he's mentoring, discipling, he holds them up. Look, look, look. The gospel's real. My ministry is gospel ministry. Look, look, look. You may have one. I mean, I know you have more than that, but you may have one in the last day. Say, this is, this is my boast. Look, this person loves Jesus. But the reality is, for those of you who trust Christ, is you drag your sorry self across the finish line. Sin still sort of entangled around your ankle, right? I mean, who's a perfect repenter? Anyone here going to die with all of their sins repented of? <laughs> okay. If you cross the finish line, there's the great judge of the universe. And he will look down at you and say, Well done. Well done. That's the vision we ought to put forth for our people as under shepherds of Christ the Good Shepherd. Let's pray. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. Thank you that you are, that you have put the Spirit into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, that you are Dad, that we can approach the throne room of grace in our time of need to receive the grace that is there for us with confidence. All because of your Son. Thank you for our good older brother, Jesus who is not ashamed to call us his siblings, even though he ought to be. So we thank you for this gospel. We pray that it would grow in our hearts with such affection for you that it can't help but spill out over into our people. That they would look at us and say, you know, my pastor, he does a lot of dumb things, but he loves Jesus and he gives me Jesus. Father, help that to be true of us. 
that we would know nothing among our church but Christ and Him crucified. For the good of them, for the good of us, and ultimately for the glory of your Son, that the knowledge of His glory would fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. It's in His great name that we pray, that His name would be magnified.